We're going to look at four main points. We're going to look at companionship. We're going to look at a place to call home. Sexual temptation. And am I the problem? Um, as we look at these, the themes, there's going to be three main themes that are going to come through in every point. The first is pain, the, the reality of pain. That there is pain in this age. And learning to deal with pain is a vital part of growing into maturity. Uh, the pain avoidance is not, is not the way to growth. Um, the second thing we're going to look at is contentment. Paul talks about, in, in Philippians, about learning. In one of the translations it says learning the secret of being content with plenty or with nothing. And there's something of a, uh, of a real spiritual uh, um, process there. It's not Spiritual learning, though obviously it involves time in a book, um, it's not just learning theoretically in the same way that you might learn from a book to pass an exam. Spiritual learning means you walk through something. Uh, and as a result, you come out differently. And um, contentment is something, is something that we have to learn over time. Uh, and there's a process to walk through, which can be a difficult one. And the final thing is kingdom urgency. When you look at um, the, uh, the subject of uh, the unmarried life in the Bible, you can't get away from this idea of the urgency of the kingdom of God. Um, there's something linked there. So those things are going to come through as we look our four points. So the first point, companionship. Um, I'm sorry that the scriptures will not come up on the screen today. Uh, normally they would do, um, but that is due to a technical problem at my home. Um, and I'm not the problem, although I often am. Uh, it's not me. Uh, it wasn't me, Gov. But, um, so, but I, will, I will read them all out um, um, from, I'm reading from the uh, ESV uh, translation here. So Genesis 2 ver- verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So we see right at the beginning, Adam, uh, this is before anything bad has happened, this is before the, they ate from the tree or anything like that. Um, God looks on at the man and he says it's not good for him to be alone. And after he brings the animals along and the man names them, the situation is not resolved. Um, intimate companionship with an animal will not do. Might sound obvious. Worth saying. Okay? Worth saying. Intimate companionship with an animal will not do. So God creates Eve and uh, brings her along and they have this wonderful fit in every way. You have this wonderful uh, complementary fit. The, the, the terminology, the original words that they cry out, complementary, these, these people were made for one another. They're the same but they're different, they're different but they're the same and it's wonderful and it works brilliantly together. In Genesis 3, after they um, listen to the voice of the serpent, eat from the forbidden tree, and God comes and brings judgment on them, there's a, there's a, big, a big judgment that comes on their particular uh, relationship, their companionship, their marriage. There's, a very, uh, there's some strong things that happen there, which mean that this relationship from now on, though still ordained by God and blessed by God, will be full of tension and difficulties, power struggles and the like. That's what we find in Genesis 3. So it's a challenge, that relationship remains a challenge, but it still stands that it's God's God's amazing answer to the problem of a lack of companionship. That's what we find. That's the the picture that we have, if you like. So what does the unmarried Christian do who uh, 
is not engaged, involved with anyone romantically, not engaged, and um, doesn't see that happening soon. Or maybe, actually, in their own heart, they just feel, Do you know what, I think that for me, I'm gonna, this, is, this is my life, I'm going to remain unmarried. What, 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 does that, what does that look like? Well, I want to look at Jesus, first of all, just to, to start there. Because Jesus uh, was a wonderful example. There were crowds around Jesus, but he didn't get lost in the crowd in the sense that he didn't have a lot of very, very, very superficial relationships with everyone. There were crowds around, but the crowd didn't, didn't, wasn't his source of comfort. He wasn't like, yes, I've, you know, the modern day equivalent, I've hit 500 friends on Facebook. Yeah? No. Uh, we see Jesus' relational life was a lot richer than that. After the crowds, there's then this, we, we, we read of 70 that he sent out um, to do the kind of things he did. We don't really know much about them, so I'm not going to say a lot on that, but we do know a lot about the 12. We know about these particular 12 that he gathered to himself to be with him, to spend time with him, that he would teach and train them as a rabbi with his students. We see that, but within the 12, there were the three, Peter, James, and John. There was a closeness there between those three. He took them to uh, situations where the other nine wouldn't come. He exposed them to his, uh, his moments, which were more difficult than any other. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before the cross, and he's beginning to experience a crisis. He's beginning to experience the sense of what the cross is going to mean, and he begins to be distressed in his spirit, and the three are with him. As he says, my soul is distressed to the point of death. Jesus, the human. And he wants these three with him during that moment. And he says, come and pray with me, and they fall asleep. And you sense, ah. He had other friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother. They, weren't, they were disciples, but not in the, same, in the same sense as the twelve. They were clearly friends. They would spend time together. There was Jesus' family, his mum and his siblings. We don't read anything really about his dad after his age 12 and upwards. We don't know. Maybe he died. But we know that his mum and his siblings were around. But it can't be denied that probably even for Jesus to not have that one person is difficult, particularly at crunch moments. So you look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes the three with him and they fall asleep. And you think, oh man, it's very, very alone. Now it's a unique situation. The whole idea of the cross is that one man, the only worthy man, faces the wrath of God for the sin of the world. And so of course he had to be alone. I understand that. But Jesus was fully human. He would have experienced everything that we did. And so it also is a picture of incredible loneliness. And I think the reality is, is that for those who don't have that one person, there are particular times in life, whether it's a crisis, where it's not obvious who to go to straight away. Or you've got four or five options and you're not sure who's going to be busy. Whereas when you're married, you know who you go to straight away. It's hard. Or celebrations. Great moments. You've just heard some amazing news. Something wonderful has happened. Who's the first person you call? There's a number of options. It's not a bad thing at all. Someone might say it's a better thing, but there's something perhaps in the heart that says, ah, it would be wonderful to just be able to straight away go to my other half and share the news. Or maybe just downtime. Just when you're doing nothing. Just when, you know, it's like you're just watching a movie or you just you want to just go out for a meal and you're scratching your head. You're thinking... Who? I don't want to inconvenience that person. If I call them, you know, these are difficulties that are faced by unmarried people. Those of us that are married don't face. Also, you can spread yourself too thin, as we heard on the video there. There can be this sense in which 
Maybe there is more time, particularly without children. Maybe there is more time to go here and do this and be with that person there. And yet that sometimes can leave you in a position where that deep desire to know and to be known, you feel, oh, I've, kind of, I've gone too thin. The diary is full, but it feels a little bit hollow. It's another area that can be very, very difficult. The cyber companionship thing needs critiquing. It's not wrong to know people on, online, but it, it, it needs looking at carefully because, of course, the difficulty with that is you present... You present who you are. <laughs> it's very different from being known. Yeah, it's very different from being known, isn't it? When you can present. Favourite photo? Funny phrase? You're there. You can, yeah, you look really, really, really great. All shiny. It's different from being known. Another element with not having that one-on-one companionship is it does leave you, probably I would say, slightly more vulnerable to becoming selfish over time. It can. It has that potential over time. It's one thing to share a flat, and I know that actually many of you share a bedroom because of the financial situation in the the borough that many of us live in. But sharing a bed has a whole different thing. (laughs) Sharing a bank account, sharing your body, giving up your rights to your body, man, that's, that's another level. And uh, there's the potential to grow selfishly, even if you're zealous and godly. I remember um, before I was married, I, I tended, to be honest, through sort of fears, really, through internal fears to sort of keep myself to myself. I made it look very holy. There's just fear, really. And there is this, it's so important. I was talking to James and Michelle, who were with us last week, who we interviewed talking to James about the importance of inviting companionship into your life and allowing, allowing a kind of a, a, a volunteering a window in, you know? Because when you're out and about, you can, without being forced, but I think we all put our best foot forward, don't we? I think it's just human. Um, and so to open the window on the areas you think, this is a bit mucky, <laughs> this is a bit dark, I need some help here. Um, as well as the celebrations and the wonderful things. Another difficulty in this area of companionship is that it, particularly if you want to be with someone, you want to be married, then it can just raise the stakes on every interaction with someone of the opposite sex so it just becomes so tiring and so draining and so complicated. You think this, is just, this isn't even rich and fulfilling. For some, for others navigate this one brilliantly. For, for some, this is a real difficult area of pain. What do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this? How do we, how do we handle this situation? Um, those of you that aren't married and some of these areas are, are resonating with you. Well, first we need to just say, yeah, it's painful. It's painful. And next week when we look at the gory of married life, there'll be some moments where we look at each other and we go, yeah, it's painful. Okay? Because there's pain in both. But these areas are painful. If you are... Unmarried because you want to either just live unmarried for the Lord or keep yourself for a kind of relationship that's going to be fruitful and going to be centred on Jesus, then I think it, you could, this, this qualifies as the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. Paul talks about, I want to know him, Philippians 3. And I want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. This is, this is the fellowship of his sufferings. 
The pain that you feel is a, a pain I am no doubt Jesus felt. Jesus knows that pain. He knows that pain of not having that one human companion alongside him. And so in that sense, there's an opportunity for you to say, you know what, this is, this is, I'm going to embrace this pain, I'm going to learn intimacy with Jesus through it. It doesn't make it painless. Don't hear what I'm not saying. These points here aren't fixes. I'm not trying to fix anything. Okay? But I'm trying to just speak biblical truth into it. And so there is fellowship in Jesus' sufferings. Um, he will meet you in there. You can get to know him better through it. In terms of contentment, I'd make a comment that, as I said at the start, this age is very, very incomplete that we live in. We know Jesus has done the mighty work on the cross. We know his kingdom has been inaugurated. But we live in the not yet of that as well, don't we? We know. We'll look later at Revelation 21, that moment where where he makes all things new. But there is this sense in which, you know what? Learning contentment in this age is a battle for anyone, any human being. We are all in the same situation of learning contentment. It just might be in a different area of life. And basically, being content means you haven't lost your peace. doesn't mean that you don't bring your complaints to God. doesn't mean you pretend everything's rosy. But it means actually that you are in that place of peace. You don't let your peace internally be robbed away. When that happens, you know you've lost your contentment. You're covetous. You're, you're after something you haven't got. And, cut, and your, your mind is consumed with it. Your, your passions and desires get hooked up in it. And you, you, you're no longer in that place. Peace where the Lord wants you. So learning that, which sometimes just means sitting it out. It just means, it sometimes it just means it's blood and guts. Standing there saying, I'm not going to give way to these covetous desires. I'm going to stand here and this wind will pass. <laughs> and by God's grace and in his wisdom and timing it does. But it's a genuine battle. I think the potential element of this, just worth remarking upon, is that, and I guess we'll cover this more probably on the glory of marriage, just these things are, they are interlinked. But in terms of urgency, there are certain pitfalls in terms of intimate companionship, Sometimes. For the kingdom of God. So you're often, not often necessarily, but sometimes you do see someone gets together with someone and it's, it's not, you know, it's like the domestic suddenly fills the horizon. It's all about the sofa. It's all about the kitchen. It's all about the temporary. And it absolutely fills the horizon and you just get, you're looking on thinking, I, th- I think you may, uh, some, sofas are fine and kitchens are fine and temporary things are fine. If that fills your horizon, you've lost something. You've lost the kingdom urgency. And so I think that, again, it can, you know, in, from, from that perspective, um, there, there, there are just, how can I put it, um, in, 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 in getting together with someone and that desire to please the Lord and please them, there just sometimes there is a vulnerability in that area. And so these are things just to sort of throw into the mix and to help you to, to reflect upon. It doesn't fix it. Just put it out there and just be honest. So there it is. I've, I've done a lot of listening in the last few weeks, obviously with the guys on the video, but I just, I'm just trying to listen, 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 because I'm aware that I'm a married man doing the preach. I'm aware of that. Um, and uh, uh, I'm doing the preaching as a married man because God has called me to uh, 
pastor this church uh, and one of the primary ways I do that is, is through preaching so that's why I'm doing it even though I'm married I do feel that it's right that I do it and so if that's upset any of you sorry second thing <laughs> second thing is this idea of a, you know, a place to call home that either you know a house can just feel a bit empty or a flat can feel empty or it's very much someone else's home you live there but it's someone else's home and you kind of you know you sort of tiptoe around a bit or, or whatever it just doesn't feel the same as making your own nest or even if you do it just feels a bit incomplete these are some of the things that were said I'm not saying it's like this for everyone this was a thing that came through and it's worth giving some attention to um, and I think tied up in this, it's obviously not just a building, it's something of, it's this stability maybe, and this predictability, um, you know, not having someone to grow old with, um, you know, friendships change, people move on, um, and it can, particularly in London, it's very, very transient, and you can suddenly feel, I know for myself and Davina, as marriage, there have been times when people have moved on, and we're like, oh man, we're grieving, we're sad, <laughs> you know, I think it would have been multiplied if we, if we didn't have one another. Just being honest. Uh, that can, because home is about who's, who's around, who's in the area, who's contactable easily. Suddenly, ah, that can hurt. That's very, very real. Um, I think absolutely unmarried people need homes that are built on relationship. They need places, physical places, where they can go, where they know they're welcome. Where they know they haven't got to book up three weeks in advance. Now it does say in Psalm uh, 68 verse 6, this is a really, really beautiful little verse here in the book of Psalms. Listen to this, listen to this Psalm 68 verse 6, this is something that the Lord does, it's a beautiful thing. God settles the solitary in a home. Other versions say he puts the lonely in families. That's the heart of God. He puts the lonely in families. And, and the church of God, well, more than anything, we're a family, right? That's the idea, isn't it? That, that we're, we're God's household, that we're his family. And so it's so important. It's so, so important, because I think one of the things that came through talking to some of the unmarried people was that there is just a sense in which, when there's a husband and a wife, and particularly with kids, it just, it just feels a bit more like a home. And so somehow, those of us who, who qualify in those brackets, we've got, to, we've got to really feel responsibility before God to be able to kind of, I think, probably realistically, have a kind of a policy of trying to welcome and have lots of people through to just be a blessing in that regard, but then also realistically focus on some people that we can really build deeply with and say, hey, look, this, this place for you, come around whenever you like. And I think if we all try and work out that, then God in his mercy will potentially put a lot of solitary people in a home, and that's a beautiful and a powerful thing. There can be the desire for children. If someone who's... I'm married and, and uh, longing for a home, this desire, I want to have children. What do I do? This is an interesting one, isn't it? It's a very interesting one. The desire for children. I myself was brought up in a, uh, for much of my uh, young years in a single parent home. I have nothing but admiration for single parents. We're, we're, we're double parents and um, sometimes we're worn out because kids are full of energy. To have a, to, for someone to bring up a child or children alone, I just have nothing but admiration for by the same token, growing up in that environment, I definitely felt, ah, I'd love, you know, kind of a, I guess, a dad-like person that w- would be around and would want to put a lot of, a lot of time in. And, um, and so I think historically, you know, if, if I'd spoken to someone and, uh, who, who was unmarried and they said, I really want to adopt or foster, that kind of thing, I think I would have been like, you know, but, but what about, you know, you know, you know, you know, 
God's ideal in creation, what, what he's after, but I think as God is teaching me, understanding what, really what it means to be church, I think I'm probably a bit, I've changed a bit, I think, you know what, I think, let's do it together. Let's do this as a church, you know, let's, if there are some of those that, that feel that God's put it on their heart, but they're not married, well, let's journey together, let's work out, can we, can we find a way of providing bags of uncles and granddads and whatever, we do it well, do it wisely, take, you've got to do it, take a lot of thought, but I think I've seen it in action, it's a beautiful thing, I think it's, it's just changed the way I think, I think, oh, okay, let's think about this, we've, we've got some dear friends coming to our next family meeting to talk about adoption and fostering, because it's such a huge thing in the UK, it's such a picture of the gospel when someone's adopted, right, it's a picture of the gospel, so I, I want us to grapple with that one as a church, but I would also say this is a beautiful verse in Isaiah 54, verse 1, and, and, it, and um, it says, it says uh, I'm in the Psalms, that's why it doesn't say that, it's the wrong book. Uh, Isaiah 54 verse 1, it says, Sing, O barren one who didn't bear, and break forth into singing, and cry aloud, you have not been in labour, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who's married. And this is, I think, this is, this is speaking spiritually, and I, I think also I would just want to say that um, we, we need as a church, as we... Go on in the coming years for there to be many, many spiritual kind of mums and dads around. Married and unmarried. And that, and that there's a sense of just wonderful fruitfulness that we're, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're, there's people that we can, not in a weird kind of papal, you know, kind of way, you know, yeah, my child, no, not, not, not like that. But the relationship, it's, it is maternal, it is paternal, it, it's God-given. And the Lord wants to do that among us, doesn't he? And I think we need to just say, hey, look, the promise is... Uh, those who are unmarried, will, will, there will be something about them in God with the potential to be able to bear a load of spiritual children and see people come into new life in Christ and to help nurture them in that. And I feel, yes God, give us that. Amen. Amen. I love John 14 where Jesus is just about to go and back to the Father and the disciples are troubled and he's, he says to them, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's the heart of Jesus. For all of us, married and unmarried, those of us who say, I want to follow you, Jesus, he's like, I've gone, but I'm coming, I'm preparing a place for you, I'm coming back with you, why? So you can be with me where I am. And for all of us, our ultimate home is with him, with the Father. And it's so important that we all get our heads around that and... uh, and don't sort of, yeah, yeah, but, no, 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 let's let that impact our soul. Again, I'm not saying it takes the pain away, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying that we need to have that in the mix. It brings, should bring great comfort to our souls. should, absolutely, bring great hope to our hearts. It's a very interesting passage in Luke where I think Jesus talks in some senses about his own homelessness. Um, some people want to follow him, and then he says some things which are quite challenging. In Luke uh, 9, he, he says this, this is um, Luke nine fifty seven. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, well, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There was a season in Jesus' life where he was homeless. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. It sounds reasonable. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I'll, I'll follow you, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, well, no one who puts his hand to the plough and then looks back 
is fit for the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing here, he's really nailing this kind of, this domestic thing. When you just get domesticated and your vision just gets filled with whatever it might be. There are seasons where you have to attend to stuff, of course. Otherwise you're being irresponsible. Yes, if you've got like a home and a family, absolutely to neglect that, the Bible says you're worse than an unbeliever. Oh, you really, it's, it's of primary importance. But what, is, what, what, but, but what, what bracket does it live under? Seek first his kingdom. That's what it lives under. And if it's not under that, it's out of place. It's out of place. You've taken a good thing and you made it a God thing. And if you've done that, then you need to just say, Lord, straighten my head out. Straighten my head out. And he will gladly, gladly do that. So a place to go home. The third thing is sexual temptation. I want to read to you from uh, Revelation 12. It's a very uh, vivid image of uh, satanic kind of um, uh, attack on the church. This is couple of verses. Um, the, the, the words are very, uh, it's apocalyptic, the book, so it's all images. Okay? The serpent represents Satan, uh, and the woman represents the church. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth, spewed up, uh, after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the, the, the imagery we've got here is, is, is of one of the ways that Satan attacks the church. He's just like, he sort of just looks to sweep people away. I guess different things at different times for different people. But I think the whole uh, sexualization of society is, just a, is one of those things that's going on at the moment. It's, a, it's, a, it's the spew of Satan, really. Uh, and we've got to look at that for a minute and just, if you're not used to that kind of thing being spoken about in church, well, uh, if the church doesn't say nothing about it, then, you know, I guess uh, we're, we're abdicating our responsibility to speak up on behalf of the Lord. So, sorry if you're not used to this topic being spoken about in church, but it's important that we do. You see, the secularisation of society, it creates a context of great pressure. Real pressure. Constantly there's this sense of the environment is charged Sexually, and it feeds into uh, the desires within that are that just really, you know, want everything that's on offer for the believer. The Bible is very, very clear. I love that song. No longer sinners, now we're saints. It's so true. I'm no longer, you know, I'm no longer at my core what I was bent against God. I'm now bent towards God and righteousness because I've been born again. Nothing I've done because of the cross, the victory of Jesus. I've, I'm not what I was, and yet until glory, I will have indwelling sin. Okay? I will. Anyone says they haven't got any sin, they're a liar. <laughs> Sorry. Okay? So, I've got, into a, I've got desires within me that are, that, that the Bible sort of terms it under the phrase, the flesh. But it, what it means is, is that when, when the atmosphere is charged with stuff that's seductive and unrighteous, that there's a part of me that really wants to engage with that. There's a part of me that just wants to go headlong into that, indwelling sin. Okay, so we've got to just, okay, we've got to deal, what does that, what does that, what does that mean? Well, it, Corinth was very similar, and, and Paul, I want to look at two, two kind of, two elements to it. Firstly, Corinth was very similar, and Paul's, Paul's advice is very, very practical to the Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, remember this big chapter on singleness and marriage, and he says to them, I'll just read you a few verses, he says, uh, concerning the matters of which you wrote, is, is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, 
But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Uh, the, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. That means, that means he should give his body to her. Um, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then he goes on in verse 8 and he, he says this. Um, he says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Right? So it's a very practical response, isn't it? Think, well, that's a really practical response, Paul. It, it, it really is. There's one element, there's, some, there's a strand of teaching. Remember what I said last week, if that's the only reason you get married, you're going to be in massive trouble. Your marriage is going to be a nightmare. It's part of a conversation. Okay? But it's part of a conversation. Okay? So... So he, he says this is a very, very practical response to the situation around them, charged with uh, sex and sexual desires, and within uh, the longing for that and sexual desire. Let me just clarify, sorry, sexual desire is good and God-given, um, but it's to be expressed within marriage. So that, that's the deal there, okay? And so actually these desires, which are fundamentally good desires, are pulling me in all kinds of directions which are unrighteous and ungodly. Um, and so Paul does bring this, and it's, one response is get married. Okay? But notice this, as well as what I said about this passage last week, also notice this, Paul emphasises throughout the rest of the chapter that he does not think this will solve your troubles in life. In fact, he thinks it may multiply them. <laughs> Getting married will give you a lot more to worry about. Okay? So it's not a cure-all, he doesn't approach it that way. Okay? But that is part of the answer. However, I would also say this sadly... It seems to me, from my pastoral experience, that most people, if not all, who do not crunch, who do not deal with believers, who don't deal with uh, sexual sin in their life, whether it's on the internet or with with real life people, either way, those who do not deal with it uh, as unmarried do not do any better with it as married. That is my honest, sobering, sad observation. Those who don't find power in the cross and in the Holy Spirit and and, and through walking with God learn how to nail this thing as unmarried, they don't want to be married. And the pain it causes, as you can imagine, is multiplied by, I mean, well, I don't know how many, but it's multiplied by a lot. And I guess an observation is is that the damage done, done to the soul created by a porn-soaked society is terrifying. It's terrifying. Because there are certain messages that are given out there which are utter lies, but they're powerful. So messages like sexual fulfilment is all. But the reality is, sexual fulfilment takes time in marriage. Years. Years. For great, free, fulfilling, mutually satisfying sexual relationships. I'm not told that in the magazines. I'm told, just read this list of 50 tips and you're there. See, that's, that's what I'm told. I'm told that sexual extremes are vital. Yes, it must be extreme. It's just nonsense. Love is the anchor. Sex, approached rightly, is an expression of my lifelong exclusive devotion to this one person, a part of my expression. I also express it in time, in words, sacrifice, commitment, devotion, friendship, generosity. 
This. And I'm up for being as imaginative and as adventurous as the next person, right? So I'm not trying to close down imagination in the marriage bed. Okay? But this narrative, this storyline of this extreme thing, it's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. It's about my love for this person. That's what it's about. More on that in the coming weeks. Third lie. No details, but sexual activity. But sexual activity is my right. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's, it's God's. It's he made it. It's his. It's his gift. It's his gift to a married couple. That's not my right. Crazy lie. Fourth thing. Sex is for me. Sex is for my spouse. It's, for, it's, how I, it's one of the ways I serve my spouse. And if her attitude is the same, we have a wonderful time. It's not about take, it's give. Law number five, sexual perfection is the norm. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. We are blooded, broken people. And we do our best to love and give ourselves to one another. It's always flawed. Law number six, Sexual exploration is harmless. Sex is just too darn powerful for that to be true. To just explore with this person and that person, that's that just that whole idea is just you're gonna really you're gonna really affect your soul with that. Next nonsense is this that sexual promiscuity is the center ground. It's the center ground, it's you know, this is well this is the norm. Sexual promiscuity is a sign of lostness and homelessness. You're longing for intimacy, but you're looking in all the wrong places. You need to come home. Not to your spouse, but to your maker, to your saviour, to the only one who can satisfy the eternal longings in your soul. We have lost our centre as a nation and as individuals in this one and we're in big trouble. The reality is is that behind the huge sexualisation of society is a demonic spirit called Babylon. And the best way I can describe it is is like this. It's like you're hosting a party in your house and uh, you've got some friends around and it's going well and then there's a knock at the door and you open the door and you can't believe. You can't believe the babe at the door. Even her knock was seductive. And she wants to come to your party. Bingo. And so you let her in, and it's strange as she comes in, because you know she's got quite an entourage with her, all sorts. But nevertheless, she's there. So it's worth it. And, uh, but then you find as soon as she's in and the door's shut, that the feel and the nature of the party changes. And you think, oh, this feels a bit odd. The atmosphere's changed. And you realise that actually these new people that have come in, this new lot, they're affecting the whole air and beginning to do their thing. And they're very much making themselves at home. And you start to get a bit unnerved. And you think, I'm not totally comfortable with this. And then you approach her and you say, look, I just need to talk about this because what you're doing, you're just moving things. You're making it, you know, this, this, is, this is my party. And she looks at you with utter disdain. And says, this is my house now. And you realise you've let a flipping monster into your house. And then you think, 
I don't know what to do. Because she literally braids me in the eye. She says, I'm not going. We're here to stay. How do you deal with that? I tell you now, no amount of resolve will deal with that. You are out of your depth and you are out of your league. Only the cross of Jesus Christ will deal with that. And I tell you, it will. I tell you now, it will. Jesus defeated every vile, dark thing at the cross. He disarmed it. Okay? Which means he wins, which means he has authority. You need to understand that before you start resolving anything. <gasps> you to understand something first. Jesus has the power to crunch this stuff in your soul. So that you're not enslaved. I don't know how long, someone, how long can someone keep coming here and singing songs about Jesus' victory and yet be in that the rest of the week. I don't know. I don't, how, long, how long can you do that before you start thinking this is a joke? I'm not being funny, but... We'll always battle with sin. We'll always stumble. We'll always make mistakes. But to be in the grip of that... Jesus, Jesus' blood has the power to cleanse you genuinely from every, whatever, and, and, to, and the Holy Spirit's empowered to, for you to walk free. I tell you, I promise you. It's not just talk. We could get up person after person and just tell their story. Not going to, but we can. This is a really big one. And, uh, and I would also just say this, just quickly, just say, well, yeah, this is... This is this, is a, this remains a battle when you're married. We can talk about that next week, okay? But it is definitely a real thing for those who want. Final thing, final thing. I didn't want to end on that, so I didn't put it last. Final thing, is there something wrong with me? Well, I don't, I don't have someone. Is there something wrong with me? Well, firstly, maybe. Okay? So, <laughs> we've got to look at that option. We've got to look at that option. Maybe. Here's what I mean. <laughs> Here's what I mean. Uh... If you are worshipping the idea of being with someone, uh, you become an emotional black hole. And people feel it around you. And any potential, going to be really freaked out by that. The last thing I want to be is with a woman who's looking to me to make her complete. That's a terrifying idea. I have not got it. <laughs> I can't do that, you know? So you've got to ask yourself... That the kind of desperation creates an intensity and a heaviness that's just like freaky. So there's a heart issue that you've got to, you've got to work through there yourself. Um, how do you know, you know, how do you, how do you know someone's going to be a bit like that? Look at their other relationships. Relationships of parents, relationships of friends. If there's a health there, that's probably your best sign. If it's all a bit weird and intense and isolated, something's not great. Something. Um, so maybe. The, but, right, we've done that, okay? Is there something wrong with me? Maybe, right? But maybe there's something wrong with the person who really likes you. But can't find the courage to say whatever people say these days. <laughs> I'd say what I would say, but it's so lame. I'm going to get laughed out of the room. You know, whatever people say these days, you know? They haven't got the courage. Um, or they've, you know the complicated thing. The complicated things that I've just noticed. This, this things are really complicated in people's minds a lot these days, and just going down all these strange alleyways first. You think, <laughs> you know. But 
Because there could be something wrong with him. Um, but what I would say is this, actually, finally, it's probably not that or that. It's probably just, you know, I mean, there's, pro- there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, and here's what I mean. Like, I think some people get really worked up about, oh, I'm not this, oh, I'm not like that. Taste is a funny old thing. Taste is a funny old thing. Isn't it? I was just, yeah, isn't it? Taste is funny. Any, everything from, you know, everything from coffee to cars to sexual attraction. It's a funny old thing. It really, uh, really is. Um, who watches Call the Midwife? So good, isn't it? And I bet you thought him. Yeah, I love it. I couldn't watch the I couldn't watch the first series because of the labour scenes. You know, when they're in labour, every week someone has a baby. And um, I, for the two and three that I was in for, I fainted at both that I was in for. So I'm I'm used, so I sort of grip Davina's leg and look away and you know. But actually, I just got totally hooked on it. It's an amazing program. It's a, it's a it basically follows these uh, follows these nuns and these midwives in 1950s East End London, and it's ah, it's so moving, deeply, deeply moving and uh, it's a it's wonderful wonderful programme, but there's, uh, many of you know Miranda Hart, the comedian, well she's in it, she plays one of the mi- midwives and her name is Chummy, and um, you know, I mean, those of you that know Miranda Hart she's probably about six foot one, and um, uh, quite cumbersome and she actually uh, builds a lot of her career around her <laughs> clumsiness obviously, something, okay a little private joke, that's fine, but uh, so anyway, but there's this one moment, and I think it was in the last episode of the series where Chummy's mum, she's an absolute nightmare, and hates, hate, really, really, for all intents and purposes, functionally hates her daughter. Through in the resources of her heart, she doesn't, but functionally she does. She's constantly saying negative things to her and about her. And there's this one conversation where she's speaking to Chummy's husband, and she mentions something about Chummy's feet, um, in terms of the size of them. And... It's just this great moment where the, the husband, he just looks totally innocently at the mum and just goes, I love her feet. And it's this wonderful moment where this mum's kind of just assumed, you know, assumed that the husband's driver hasn't seen her feet, which would be quite hard, I would imagine, you know, because she's a big thing. But, or, 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 or just, you know, or like, you know, he, he won't even talk about it because, you know, he, told her, he, he sort of bears with her feet. But he just looked, it's this look of innocence where he goes... I love her feet. It's a great moment because it embodies it. it, it, it it's an, an analogy, really, for this thing called taste. That we we just find different temperaments attractive. Some people love someone fiery, you know. Some other people want someone calm and level. It's just it's a taste thing, and um, and so on that front, I think there's so many factors that to get into a thing about oh, you know, I don't know, my feet are too big or whatever. You you you're crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Don't do that. Um, do, you know, just, I know this, one of the things we're really not doing is just making sure that every time we speak to and about unmarried people that we're making it a how to find a partner thing because, you know, after what we looked at last week, we realised that's, if that's always a deal, that's not appropriate. But I will just say this just quickly because I mentioned something. You're just looking for three things spiritual alignment, you're both mad about Jesus. Not just someone ticks a Christian box, you know, like in my big fat Greek wedding, you know, he gets baptised into the Greek church just to be with her. We're not talking about that. Someone loves Jesus. Right? Yeah, I love Jesus, they're following him. Uh, where, there's, where there is physical attraction, all right, because you're sharing your bed with them for the next few decades. Okay? And where there's chemistry, where you are attracted rather than repelled. And we're not going to have any of that nonsense about, we find each other repulsive, but God said, no, he didn't. Stop it. <laughs> All right. 
you know what I mean? What fountain are you drinking from? I mean, what is that? We really hate each other, but, you know, the Lord's in it. He must be dreading it when you get together. So don't. Right. Finally, punishment from God. You know, it's got punishment. God is good. He's a perfect father who does discipline his children because he's good. But this idea of this malevolent figure that's just, you know, I don't know, you forgot to say your prayers, you know, three and a half years ago that night, and now, forever. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? He gave his only son to die for you. Come on. And one of Satan's biggest lies is just sowing in malevolent, slanderous ideas about the gods, and you won't trust him. He is good, he is perfect, he is demonstrated at once for all with this lavish gift of his son to pay for your sins so you can be forgiven freely and have eternal life and have your own room or your own mansion, whatever translation you read. Come on, he's for you. He's for you. And so even his discipline is good. Not to be feared. Not to be associated with rejection, the opposite. To be associated with acceptance. I'm his. That's why he's listening to me. That's how it works. Why can someone say, why don't you smack them? I say, because they're not mine. <laughs> conclusions, right? They're the same conclusions I've already said, but I want to just give you a bit of scripture for them. Number one, there's always some pain in this age. This is not the age where every tear is wiped away. We will all shed more tears between now and glory. Okay? We will shed more tears, we will feel loss, we will feel pain, there will be things that don't work out exactly as we would have liked. We're living in an age of massive, cataclysmic, titanic attention, battles, difficulties. Jesus has won the ultimate victory, we know how it's going to end, but there are tears on the way. But we know and we believe that those who are on a pilgrimage, as they shed their tears, they turn that place into a place of springs and oases, that somehow even God uses that and it's redemptive. But there are tears on the way. But this is the day that is coming... I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Not angels. This is not a job he's going to delegate. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be any more bad stuff. Okay, second thing, contentment, sorry. Philippians 4. Paul says this. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This isn't some little verse, this last one, that you just throw out glibly. Okay? It's something you walk through and you learn, oh my goodness, this is true. Even though it doesn't mean it's easy, it doesn't mean that it's kind of, you just breeze it, you don't breeze it, but it's a secret, you learn it. You learn contentment. May God help all of us with those covetous areas of our hearts that want some stuff we don't 
have to learn contentment. And then finally, kingdom urgency. Paul, who speaks about marriage in the most exalted terms, also says this. And for those who argue that this passage is speaking to a particular situation about a particular time, I don't find their arguments convincing. He says, this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. He's not obviously clearly from the rest of his teaching, he's not talking literally. He's saying, but there's something of an attitude that must be in your heart. Something of an attitude, something of a seed that must sit there. Where you are not investing yourself fully, with your, in, in a sense of your, your hope fully, in things that will fade away. It's a mistake, it's a bad investment, it's a bad call. There's an investment in eternity, there's a wise call. Which means we absolutely engage in the here and now, in everything that we're about for the glory of God. Of course. We just go on retreat and live in a cave. Of course, of course. But it's because we recognise the eternity that's to come. Christians, let's hold out this word to our friends that don't know Jesus. Let's not be ashamed to introduce them to the raw reality of living for Christ. It's glorious. It's adventurous. It's unpredictable. It's wonderful. It's gutsy. Scary. It's emotional. Hold it out. Don't just give them little bits and sound bites and things. Let them in. If you're really walking it, it'll be powerful. And then finally, those of you here who don't know the Lord Jesus and all this stuff, I don't know, I don't know what the heck you're thinking. <laughs> After this, I don't know what you must be thinking. Uh, it's not my chief job to work out what you're thinking. My chief job is to tell you that Jesus loves you. Amen. Loves you enough to give himself for you. And if you will repent of your sins, if you will turn away from those... That can sound such a cliche. What do I mean? If you, if you, if you, if you recognise, for whatever reason, maybe you've just been on a journey up to this point today, or maybe even being here hearing this, you realise that there's a, there's a futility about life without knowing him. And you think, oh, I don't want that anymore. I want to know him. I want him to be at the centre and then work out life from that. And I'm willing to turn away from all them things that kind of grip my heart and have the first place. I want Jesus to have the first place. If you're willing to do that, I tell you, he will just meet with you. If you say, Jesus, I want to follow you, I want to give him my life, he will meet with you. You don't need anyone to pray with you. He, you tell him, call on his name, he will save you. New life will come into your soul. I'm really happy to pray with you, but I want you to know, I'm not, it doesn't depend on me to do some kind of tricks. No. Call on Jesus, he will save you. He will save you. And you'll know it. You'll know you, I'm new. What, something's, something's, what is this? You've been born again. It's beautiful.